Hey true crime fans, welcome back to Murder on the Map. I'm your host Taylor, and in case you're new here, here's a quick rundown. Each week on my show, I'll talk you through an underreported, cold, or bizarre case in each U.S. state one by one. Today's story is one you may have heard in other places, but it's so bizarre and still unsolved that I want to help get the word out so the family can hopefully bring her home. This is State 29, Illinois. This is the story of Alexis Camry Scott. Before we get into it, I want to mention a few things. First of all, this has, I think I need to put a trigger warning because this does have some sex trafficking and um, sexual abuse situations in this case. So if any of that stuff bothers you, you may want to skip this episode. And also this case is still ongoing and a lot of information in this episode has not been able to be confirmed. The police are keeping a lot, a lot of things secret in this case to protect the integrity of the investigation, so please keep that in mind as we go through the information. Alexis's mom, April, has been doing everything that she can to keep the case going, and she's done various interviews, and a lot of my information is coming from the interviews that April did, as well as press conferences done by the Peoria Police Department and local news articles. So with all that being said, let's get into the case. Alexis Camry Scott went missing on September 23, 2017 from Peoria, Illinois. She was a young mom who was trying to figure out her way through life. According to her mom, April, her daughter was a young, vibrant, and giddy woman who was full of life and energy. About a year before she went missing, Alexis gave birth to her son, Tevin. She was so happy with where her life was headed. She had just had her son, and she was with her son's father, and she thought everything was going to be great. But then shortly after she was so happy, they suddenly ended their relationship. And the breakup seemed like it really shocked Alexis. So she definitely struggled after that and was trying to find herself. And a part of that journey was also trying to find new friends to hang out with. But unfortunately, she started hanging out with people who were not exactly the best influence. And according to April, Alexis really loved people, but she could definitely be a little gullible. And April didn't want this new group of friends to be a bad influence on her, but she also didn't want to force Alexis and tell her who she could or couldn't hang out with because she was an adult. And she also didn't want to add more stress to Alexis at the time when she was already going through so much. So she honestly just kind of stood back on the sidelines and supported her daughter as much as she could. At the time of her disappearance, Alexis had black hair that went past her shoulders. Her mom said that she would have normally pulled it into a bun unless she was going out And then in that case, her mom said that she would normally wear one of her wigs. She was about 5'2 and weighed between 110 and 115 pounds. There have been several different weights and heights on several different articles, but April did clarify in an interview that the ones I just said were correct. She had various tattoos. On her right shoulder, she had a tattoo of paw prints, 
And then also lower on her right shoulder, she had her son's name, Tevin Jr., written in cursive. And on her left arm, she had royalty written in cursive. And on her right wrist, she had in cursive the name Tevin. Then on her left shoulder, she had Lily written in cursive as well. She had both of her ears pierced and her bottom lip and nose were also pierced. It's also said that she had stretch marks on her stomach from childbirth. And according to her mom, Alexis removed her own dental braces, which, holy shit, that gives me the heebie-jeebies, but she still had the brackets on her lower teeth. On the night of September 22nd, Alexis and her son and brother and her mom were all at home watching TV. About 9 p.m., April took the baby upstairs and they went to sleep. Alexis and her brother were sitting on the couch, and when asked about that night, her brother recalled that she was messaging with some people on social media, and then she decided to leave the house sometime between 11 and 12. April said Alexis had plans for that Saturday, and so when she realized that Alexis wasn't home that morning, she asked her son if he had seen Alexis, and he said that she left sometime the night before. April tried calling Alexis a few times during the day but couldn't get a hold of her. She didn't really think much of it because she said that sometimes Alexis would do this kind of thing. She would go out with her friends and it would be a weekend-long thing, not necessarily just a night or an overnight thing. So she tried to call her and text her a couple more times that day, but still wasn't too worried when she wasn't able to get a hold of her. She tried calling her on Sunday as well, but didn't have any luck then either. She figured if Alexis was going to be gone all weekend, she'd be home Monday or Tuesday at the latest. So when Monday came and she still hadn't seen Alexis or heard from her, she was starting to get a little worried. And by Tuesday, when she hadn't seen or heard anything, she texted Alexis and said that if she didn't hear from her by the end of the day, she was going to go and file a missing persons report. So she figured if Alexis was just out and had been like ignoring her or, you know, just not wanting to talk to her mom, that message would at least prompt her to respond so they didn't have to get the police involved. So when April sent that text, she then went to work, and then after work, she still hadn't heard anything from Alexis, so she decided she was going to go home, check and see if Alexis was there, and if she wasn't, she was going to the police station to file a report. On her way home, she decided to stop at the place where Alexis's friend worked, and when she got there, she asked him if he had seen Alexis. He said that the last time he saw her was on Friday night, so when April asked him for more details, she said that he told her that Alexis, him, and one of their other friends were all hanging out and driving around smoking a joint. He said that at some point one of the friends got tired and wanted to go home, and during that time Alexis had gotten a text about a party that was going on in the area, and it wasn't too far away from where they were. So she asked her friend that was driving if he could drop her off. She also asked her other friends if they wanted to join her, but apparently they weren't invited to the party so they didn't want to go. And according to this friend, he was then dropped off before the other friend took Alexis to the party. April asked the friend to contact the other guy who was driving and then find out where he dropped Alexis off. April asked this friend to call the other guy and find out exactly where he dropped Alexis off. He said that he took Alexis back to their house so she could change and then he dropped her off at the party. He said it was on the 100 block of Richmond Avenue, but he wasn't exactly sure which house it was. Apparently, there was a guy there that Alexis was talking to, and he was the one who wanted her to come to the party and said that he had weed to smoke or something along those lines. April asked if the friend picked up Alexis from the party, and he said no. So with this information, April goes home. When she gets there, there's still no sign of Alexis, and so she asked her son about what the guy had said about bringing Alexis back to the house so she could change clothes. 
The son was confused and said that if Alexis had come home, she would have had to wake him up the normal way that she had been waking him up, which was knocking on his window because she had actually lost her house key a few weeks prior. And so the only way that she could get in was having her brother open the door for her. And he said that she never did that. So that made April even more concerned and confused about the whole story that was unfolding. So she called and filed a missing persons report. She told the police officer what Alexis's friends had said, and she also gave the police the friend's location so they could go and talk to them. And so after the police talked to the friends, they wanted to get Alexis's report done and have her filed as a missing and endangered person right away. The police officer didn't tell April anything that was talked about. He just followed up with her and said that it's important that they get it filed immediately. After filing the missing person report, April started reaching out to more of Alexis's friends to see if she could find out any information about that night or anything. She contacted friends that had hung out with Alexis on a regular basis, and none of them had seen or heard from her. And then April learned that Alexis had been expressing concern about her safety in recent days to some of her friends. Now this story is about to take a whole new turn. We have to rewind three weeks before Alexis went missing because this actually isn't the first time that she's gone missing. Alexis had talked to her mom about wanting to go to Vegas for a Mayweather boxing fight. April told her daughter that she didn't think it was a good idea because she didn't think it would be a good environment for her daughter to be in. She knew that Alexis wasn't hanging out with the best people and they weren't the best influence, so she just thought it would be some bad vibes for Alexis. But unfortunately, Alexis met a man prior to this and he told her that he was a promoter and a recruiter for women for modeling and backup dancing. From the information gathered, Alexis was under the impression that she was going to Vegas and the real reason that she was going was so she could be what would be described as an escort or basically eye candy for guys at a bachelor party. So I guess April was not okay with Alexis going, but Alexis decided to go anyway and decided she was an adult, so April couldn't stop her. Alexis's new friend was supposedly buying them plane tickets for her, and this man apparently bought Alexis and her friend plane tickets to Vegas so they could be escorts for the party. When Alexis got there, she was posting some things on Facebook, but then that was it. Her mom tried calling her several times while she was there and was unsuccessful in getting a hold of her, all the times that she called. Her friend that she was in Vegas with would answer when April called and say that Alexis was busy or make up some sort of excuse or a man would answer the phone and say that she had the wrong number and that Alexis wasn't there. Obviously, April was concerned about this and she had no way of talking to her daughter who was halfway across the country with some clearly sketchy people and she wasn't even supposed to go there in the first place. And then she was even more scared when Alexis didn't make her scheduled flight home on that following Monday. She was only supposed to be there for a few days. So at this point, obviously April's freaked out. And then about a week after this, April receives a call from a woman in Sacramento, California, saying that she had just found Alexis and that she was naked and had clearly been beaten and was just huddled on the street without any clothes on. So the couple that found her were amazing and they took her to Walmart where they were going and bought her some clothes and some food and then they called April once they got home. Alexis told this woman that she went to Vegas for a bachelor party with friends, but when she got there, she found out that it was canceled. At one point, she was in the backseat of the car with her friend 
and then she passed out or something, and she doesn't really remember what happened next, but then suddenly she was alone with a strange man in a car. When she called, April said, why didn't you make your scheduled flight home? But Alexis said that it was too much to talk about at the time, and she just wanted to get home. So April was able to scrounge up the money to get her a Greyhound bus ticket back home. So then when Alexis got home, she was clearly shaken up, and April said that she had visible bruises all over her, but Alexis just didn't want to talk about it. She was afraid her mom would go to the police. Alexis did write a Facebook post about it, and she said she was kidnapped, and she talked about being forced into doing things she didn't want to do, and she wasn't able to say anything or speak out because she was being watched the entire time. Her Facebook activity during the time she had been kidnapped was very weird because in the beginning she was writing posts and posting pictures that were excited in Vegas and then after that it became very generic and plain and kind of seemed like someone wanted to keep posting uh, to make it seem like she was okay when she was obviously not. So going back to after Alexis went missing the second time, when April was talking to some of Alexis's friends, one of her friends says that she remembered Alexis saying that she was worried about someone coming after her. This friend sent April a screenshot of a message from a guy that Alexis had told that she was scared and they had been calling and saying that they were looking for her. She was scared and she didn't know what to do because she was obviously still very freaked out from everything that happened in Vegas. April asked her friends why no one said anything or why Alexis didn't say anything because basically April couldn't help Alexis if she didn't know what was going on and her friend didn't know why Alexis didn't come to her mom and honestly she said that she didn't say anything to April because she didn't think it was that important. So a few days after April filed the missing persons report for Alexis, she hadn't heard anything after the initial contact with the police. Her and some of Alexis's friends began their own searches for Alexis on Sunday, October 1st. They conducted their first search and it was close to the home that Alexis was last seen at. And when they got around the area, they noticed something really weird. They noticed the person that owned the house that Alexis was last seen at were power washing their home. And they thought that that was weird because why would you need to be doing intense cleaning of your house just a few days after someone went missing and their last known whereabouts was your home? In the process of this search, April gets a call from the lead detective on the case, apologizing for not getting in contact with her earlier. He said that he had been off work on vacation and no one told him he got a case and he didn't know until he got into work after his vacation. They didn't put anyone else on the case while he was away either, so during the first few days, which we all know is the most important time of an investigation, no one was on the case. This really upset April and it made the whole relationship between her and the police department that much more tense and made her feel like she was being let down by the department and she couldn't rely on them. The search party also found that within 13 or 14 hours of that party, the residents of the home wanted a washer and dryer removed from the house. The person that requested the removal offered a cash reward so that the washer and dryer could be removed as fast as possible. Now, when April presented this to the police, they didn't think it was that big of a deal. They said that the people who lived there had a business where they would buy washers and dryers, fix them up, and then resell them. So they said it wasn't a big deal, but with all the other circumstances, it seems awfully convenient and really sketchy that all of a sudden you're power washing your house and you need appliances removed as soon as possible. It just honestly is not a good look when someone's gone missing from your house. On October 11th, 2017, a taxi driver came forward and said that she was the one who brought Alexis to the party that night. 
She said she knew Alexis because Alexis often went to her and felt like she could trust this woman. She said that she brought Alexis to the location for the party around 4 or 4.30 in the morning. And Alexis said she wouldn't be there very long, maybe an hour at most, because she needed to get home to her son. There were 12 people at the party, and almost all of them have conflicting statements on when Alexis left. When April asked a guy on social media when she left, he said that she left walking down the road one way, and the second time he was asked about it, he said that she was walking the opposite direction. And then the third time that he was asked, he said he didn't know when she left because he didn't see her because he was in the backyard. So that's three different statements from one person. And then there were a few girls who said that they saw Alexis when they got there, and then they went to a liquor store. They said when they came back, she was still there, but then they never saw her leave, or they didn't know when she left. And then they were interviewed again with more people saying they saw her leave in a blue Impala. According to another guy, she left around 5 or 5.30, and according to another woman, she saw Alexis sitting on the porch around 6 or 7 a.m. waiting for her ride. Another woman said that she was waiting for her own ride when a car pulled up that she thought was her taxi or Uber, and then when she got into the car, she realized it wasn't hers, and she walked back to where everyone was gathered. She said that she saw Alexis walk up to the car, but she never saw the driver because of how tinted the windows were, and they weren't exactly sure if it was an Impala or something similar to that. April said that Alexis's former boyfriend fit, drove a car that seemed to fit this description that she remembered from earlier in the summer. But he had moved to Juliet, Illinois at this point already, and Juliet's about a two-hour drive from Peora. So she doesn't believe that he had anything to do with it, and he honestly didn't have a reason because they had had a pretty amicable breakup. Some of the men at the party had family members who also drove blue Impalas with tinted windows. Apparently, there are just a lot of dark-colored Impalas with tinted windows in that town. So they weren't exactly able to pinpoint whose car it may have been. A young woman came forward and said that she was on the Greyhound bus ride with Alexis when she was coming home from Vegas. She said that they had gotten to know each other and become close on this two-day ride, and Alexis had told her some information about her time being kidnapped in Vegas. She said that Alexis and her friend were in the back of a car going to California drinking and smoking. And then the next thing she knows, she's waking up and her friend is not in the car anymore. It's just this strange man, and she told him that she needed to pull over and go to the bathroom. And when he refused her out of the car to go, he finally decided to pull over. And when he did, there was a man across the street. The guy who was in the car with her was very aggressive and kept threatening her to not say anything to make the man think that something was wrong to just go to the bathroom and get right back in the car. He told her that he would find her if she tried to leave, and then he hit her a few times. April told the detectives this, and she put them in touch with the girl who is claiming all of these things to April. Another one of Alexis's friends said that Alexis messaged her shortly before going missing and said that she had the names and numbers of the people who were responsible for kidnapping her. If you're listening to my show, I can only assume that you like spooky stuff or you're my mom. And hey mom, if you're listening, go ahead and tune this ad out. Anyway, I'm shopping at Karaz and they have the cutest spooky stuff tees. They also have some Southwestern tees. So if you love Arizona and out West, there's tees for you. And my personal favorite is the Brooks and Dunn neon moon shirt. And I have a promo code where you can get 10% off your first order. So if you're in the market for some new shirts and you want to look cute, which, I mean, come on, we all do, check out karaz.com. 
That's K-A-E-R-A-Z.com and use code TaylorBTalks for 10% off your first order. I guess at some point, the guy who took her to Vegas brought her to a hotel in California and she was able to get onto his laptop and get this information. Now, obviously this information has not been confirmed and I'm going through the police timeline here and some of the timeline confirms certain bits of information, but so many names have been redacted. So it's hard to say which information's legit and which isn't. You'll see what I mean more when I go through the timeline in a couple minutes. But in Vegas, when she was kidnapped, Alexis lost her iPhone and her house key. Alexis's mom and the police are unsure which Facebook activity is from Alexis or not. April said that Alexis would often log into her Facebook on other people's phones and would sometimes forget to log out. Something interesting about her Facebook activity is that her mom said when she got back from Vegas, she needed to change her password because her phone was missing. And she assumed that this person who took her had it. And she told her mom she didn't have access to her account and that someone was actually going on her Facebook and posting to her page and she didn't know who it was. One of her friends actually helped out the police and had her password and gave it to them so that they could access her account. However, this friend told April that her and Alexis hadn't talked since August. This friend was actually supposed to go to Vegas but then backed out last minute. What doesn't make sense to me is how did this girl know Alexis's password if they hadn't talked since August? This could be completely innocent, and it could be that Alexis just didn't change her password when she said she was going to, but if she was locked out of her account, then she would have to change it because according to her mom, Alexis communicated through Facebook Messenger exclusively for a while because she was late on her phone bill. Some people think that maybe she was going out as an escort the night she went missing, but April seems to think that's not a possibility since Alexis was just wearing normal clothes. She didn't have her hair done or makeup or anything like that, which she always made sure to do if she was going out in that type of way. She would usually also take some sort of overnight bag, and she didn't have anything like that when she left. Video evidence doesn't show Alexis coming or going, which I thought was very weird, and it could just be the camera angles, but that could also mean that she wasn't there. Or it could mean that other people had been there and came and gone without being seen from the cameras that police have. Another interesting thing about the friend that Alexis went to Vegas with, you know, the one she was in the back seat with, she made it back to Chicago on her scheduled flight, no problem. Obviously, April reached out and wanted to talk to her, and when April had spoke with this friend when she was in Vegas, the friend claimed that she knew where Alexis was, she was in California, and that she was going to go get her, they were going to come home together. And then all of a sudden, she ended up not going, and then said she didn't know where Alexis was. So there's a lot of contradicting statements from this friend, and that's a shame since she was honestly the last one to really be with Alexis and know what was going on. April ended up setting up a Facebook group to help the search for Alexis. So far, the Facebook group has been a lot of help, and some of the members have lived in certain situations like the one April's going through and have been able to provide certain insights that others won't be able to. A lot of people in the group grew up in different areas of Peora where April didn't, so they were also able to help give her insights on the area and the people as well. Mike Bolin, one of the lead detectives in the case, said that the Facebook group has been an important tool for the police. He said that people are more comfortable putting clues or tips in the Facebook group than they are coming to the police. 
He said that they look into every lead that's on Facebook, even if it's hearsay, and there's no way to confirm it. It helps them see which direction that they need to take the search. He said it also helps them narrow down areas to search and social media sites to comb through. And he said that there's also very bad people in the town Alexis went missing from. And Alexis seems to have gotten caught up with the bad people. He's also skeptical that she's alive because he believes that she would have found some way to reach out by now. April says she has a strong support system and that she's also been doing her own investigating and research into Alexis, her friends, and the people she was around to see what kind of lives they live, what kind of places they went to, and what kind of things they did just to better understand the people that her daughter was hanging out with and what may have happened. Members of the Facebook group have also been conducting their own searches. They've been doing searches up and down the Illinois River in Fulton County, where some evidence has been found that could be linked to the case. When we come back from the break, we're going to go through the timeline of investigators and everything that we know so far. All of this was presented in a press conference on August 29th, 2018. It's all very confusing because like I said, they're keeping all of the names of people they've interviewed and everything close to the vest. And so I don't have any names really. So hang with me and we will get back into the timeline when we get back from the break. Now we're going to go through the timeline given by the investigators. As I said before the break, this was the timeline that investigators gave at a press conference on August 29, 2018. Almost all of the names have been redacted, so the timeline is very choppy and incomplete, but it does provide a little bit more information. At about 4 a.m. on the night that she went missing, Alexis and two of her friends were driving around smoking weed in one of the cars. About 4.31 a.m., one of the friends was dropped off at his house, and Alexis stopped by her house for a change of clothes prior to being dropped off at 125 Richmond by the other friend. At about 5.09 a.m., Alexis is dropped off at 125 Richmond. By 7.12 a.m., someone leaves the party in a black SUV. At the same time, two people arrive for the first time. After a short time, they leave to go to the liquor store, but then return at approximately 7.34 and park across the street from 125 Richmond. About 15 minutes later, at 7.49 a.m., a person moves his Impala from the front of the house to the rear alley as everyone in the front yard moves to the back of the house. At about 8.15 a.m., the black Impala leaves from out of the alley, and according to two people, it was them leaving with another person. According to the two people, another person was not at the party at the times they were at the party. They both said they don't even know who Alexis is. About 4.30 p.m. that same day, the Fulton County Fire Department is called to the home for a mattress and carpet being set on fire. On September 27, 2017, April files a missing person report with Officer Irving. Officer Irving begins investigating by talking to a couple of the last known people to see her. October 1st, 2017, at about 4 p.m., Detective Rogers receives the case for the first time and spoke to April about the case. Detective Rogers and Detective Cabo went to 125 Richmond and spoke to somebody. At the time, Detective Rogers gained consent and the residence was searched along with the backyard. On that same day, Detective Rogers obtained access to Alexis's Facebook page so he could go and monitor it and also spoke to another person 
the day after, on October 2, 2017. They met with another person at the residence and spoke to the, another person via phone who lives in Chicago and then spoke to another person as well. The next day, on October 3rd, they interviewed two other people at the police department. October 4th, the following day, they interviewed yet another person at the police department and also did a search of his music studio in Peora. On October 4th, they obtained footage from a camera at a business close to the house. On October 7th, they obtained video footage from Aqua Car Wash, which we know is across the street from 125 Richmond. October 10th, 2017, they spoke to somebody again and they went to the county jail to speak with someone else. The next day on October 11th, Detective Rogers spoke to a taxi driver for Big Daddy Cab who said that she dropped Alexis off at 125 Richmond around 4 a.m. on September 23, 2017. The same day, they spoke to another person at her residence. On October 14th, Detective Rogers spoke to April at her house and attempted to get consent to go through Alexis's bedroom for anything that he thought could help locate her. April, for some reason, refused to allow Detective Rogers to do so without a warrant. A couple of months later, April finally gives permission to go through Alexis's room, but nothing of significance is located. On October 17, 2017, an escort service ad for Alexis from August 27, 2017 was found on Backpage out of Las Vegas. They'd listed on the ad were the only dates that she was in Vegas. Now, this was really interesting to me, and I'm curious if it was the only listing for her or if there were other listings that had been found on Backpage or any other sites like this for Alexis in her hometown. On October 18th, police executed a warrant at 125 Richmond. There were no reported findings from that search. On November 21st, they interviewed someone else at the police department. On October 28th, police received information about a Craigslist ad for prostitution in Chicago. An FBI sex trafficking agent out of Chicago was contacted and given all the information on Alexis's case. On December 4th, 2017, cadaver dogs were taken to 125 Richmond and another place to search yards. On December 11th, they conducted two interviews with two different people at the police station. On December 19th, someone came forward, and I'm not exactly sure what they came forward with and if the information was ever verified and found to be true, because that's not reported anywhere. On December 21st, a search warrant was executed for the property in Canton where the mattress was burned. On December 23rd, they went to Canton and spoke to neighbor witnesses to the mattress fire and attempted to locate an unknown witness who had been on a four-wheeler. January 3rd, 2018, detectives searched approximately six miles on foot between Hillside Drive and Gardner Lane due to information obtained from a psychic medium, but nothing was located. On January 8th, they spoke to a female who allegedly had information on Alexis, but information obtained was verified through the FBI sex trafficking task force agent, and the information turned out to be untrue. On January 10th, video obtained from someone buying heroin from one of the people who was living in the house on 125 Richmond was found. On January 17th, they met with another person and interviewed him. And on February 5th, they met with another person at the police department and gave him a polygraph test, which he failed. 
On March 5, 2018, at approximately 11.15 a.m., a second warrant was executed at 125 Richmond, along with the DEA task force who had a drug warrant. And again, this is regarding the January 10th informant buying the heroin from a man living at the house. The detective spoke to a female in North Carolina, and the female said that someone had told her about what happened to Alexis. But nothing ever came of that. On April 6, 2018, someone was arrested on a warrant and re-interviewed. That same day, the fire department searched the marina with sonar and the dive team due to information that Alexis may have been put there. Over the next few weeks, the fire department checked larger parts of the marina and nothing was found. On October 7, 2018, they went to the Banner Marsh area and assisted with a private party search of the area for Alexis. Possibly human hair was located near a waterway, and it was taken as evidence to be processed, but there was nothing to indicate that this was Alexis's hair. On April 10, 2018, they went to a waterway in Banner Marsh where the hair was located as the fire department dive team searched the waterway and nothing was found. On April 8, they spoke to a former girlfriend of someone who wanted to talk to Detective Rogers about prior abuse by this person. And then on April 14th, they re-interviewed someone at the police department. Then on April 24th, Detective Rogers attempted to contact the former girlfriend of this person who told an officer she had info on Alexis. Detective Rogers contacted that girl and then the girl said that she didn't have any information and she was just spouting off because she was upset with someone who I'm assuming is her ex-boyfriend. It seems like they were possibly broken up at the time she was spouting off so she wanted to talk to the detective, but then they got back together and she was afraid of what he could possibly do. But that's just my theory. It's not documented anywhere. That same day, they were informed of a guy in California attempting to get money from April for information on Alexis. A warrant was obtained for this person's Facebook information so he could be identified, and it ultimately turned out to be a scam. On May 7, 2018, Detective Rogers went to Lower Bradley Park and met with a private party search crew who located something in the creek, and those items were collected for evidence. Two days later on May 9th, they spoke with someone at the Peora County Jail, and then on May 20th, someone was interviewed by Lieutenant Baldwin at the police department. On June 9, 2018, detectives along with the Peora County Search and Rescue Team searched several acres in the area around Wheeler Road, and nothing was found. On August 6, 2018, someone came forward with information on a person who told someone else that she had knowledge of Alexis's whereabouts. On August 15th, they followed up on the information received from an individual in East Peora regarding possibly seeing Alexis, and that information was found to be untrue. On August 20th, Detective Rogers located and interviewed the female who someone had mentioned knowing where Alexis was, but then the female denied, saying that she ever knew anything and denied even knowing who Alexis was or any of the people at the party. On August 27th, the detectives searched an area along the Dickinson Run Creek, Kickapoo Creek, located near the Dickinson Cemetery based on information received from a psychic medium, and again, nothing was found. Approximately 19 search warrants have been obtained and served on Alexis's Apple email for phone and Facebook records. Alexis had two old phone numbers and also used apps like Pinger, TextMe, and Snapchat, so police are trying to get those records as well. At this point, it seems like every person who was at the party that night or morning had been interviewed. 
Investigators confirmed that a mattress and carpet from the house at 125 Richmond were burned the day after she went missing. Lieutenant Mike Boland said that the people who attended the party are key witnesses and they were the players that were involved in the case. He also was quoted saying, we're pretty confident that the people that are involved in her disappearance, whether she is still alive or isn't, are stemming from that party and all of the people involved. April went on the Steve Wilco show and the episode aired in April of 2019. They brought on April as well as the man who brought Alexis to Vegas. His name is Leland. Steve asked Leland how he got involved with Alexis and his response is, quote, her daughter hit me up on Facebook trying to see what's up because I smell good, I look good, and I live good. And she wanted to be in on that money train. Obviously, me saying what Leland said doesn't give you the full context, so I highly recommend you go check that show out. I'll have it linked in the show notes. Instead of me just telling you what he said, I think it's just better if you see his demeanor and his attitude, but I'll go through a lot of his answers to the questions that he was asked. He said that Alexis came to his studio one time and she brought a young girl with her that looked underage, so he asked for her ID. Another time him and Alexis spoke was on Facebook Messenger. He said that she hit him up bragging about how much money she makes prostituting, and she says that she makes $3,000 a day. He then allegedly said that she asked him if he could get her a hotel room, and he said no. He told her that his work needed dancers to go on tour and sell merchandise and asked her if she wanted to do that, and she said no. So he said after that he didn't have any use for her. So then regarding the Vegas trip, he claims that she, that he booked a stripper for the bachelor party and she wanted to bring her friend. Leland said that she could bring her friend as long as the friend buys the own, her own ticket. He claims they'll show April and the whole world the inbox messages of him telling Alexis that she had to buy her own ticket if she wanted to go. She apparently said to him that she didn't have a debit card and they agreed that he would buy the ticket for her if she paid him in cash for the ticket once they got to Vegas. But apparently when she got there, she had forgotten to bring money or something or didn't have it. But again, that's all according to Leland, so we have no idea if it's true or not. I think I believe Leland when he says that he could show everyone the messages with Alexis saying that she had to buy her own ticket. But I think when it comes to the rest of the things that he's claiming, I don't think if we were to see the messages that it would be going down in the same way that he says. But again, that's just my opinion. It doesn't make sense to me why she would be reaching out to him if she was uninterested in what he had to offer, such as like going on tour and selling merchandise. But his story saying that Alexis makes $3,000 a day, like why would she be reaching out to him for a hotel room or needing anything if she's making $3,000 a day? That doesn't really make any sense. And when Steve asked Leland if he saw her in Vegas, Leland said yes, that her and her friend actually stayed at his house and he didn't even stay at his house. He stayed at his condo. He said that there were a bunch of people at the house and the next morning, one of the guys said that he was missing $500 from his wallet and was apparently blaming Alexis. He said that the guy probably forgot that he spent the money because there was a lot of gambling and stuff going on. But even so, he claims that he bought Alexis and her friend plane tickets to go home the next day. He said they went out that night and then Alexis texted her friend and said that she was in Sacramento. That's literally the only details he gives. He said that they went out that night and then Alexis texted her friend. He doesn't say when they went out, where they went, how they got separated, 
and he was saying he couldn't wait for Alexis to come back. He had something to do on Tuesday, and he had to get back to Illinois. So because of that, him and the friend bounced. They flew back to Illinois without knowing where Alexis was, without talking to her, checking with her, anything. He said about a month after the Vegas trip, he hears that she went missing, and when the police call him and ask him questions, he said that he was at the car wash and the police came up to him and asked him more questions. Apparently, it was the car wash by the house at 125 Richmond, the house she went missing from, and I guess he was talking to the guys while at the car wash while they were across the street or something. So that just proves that like everyone in this story knows each other, and this is getting sketchier and sketchier by the minute. Steve gives Leland a lie detector test, and the questions that he asked were, did you participate anyway in Alexis's disappearance from Las Vegas? He was also asked, did you participate anyway in Alexis's disappearance from Peora? And then when he was asked if he knew for sure who was involved in either of Alexis's disappearance, and does he know where Alexis is now, he answered no for all of them, and he passed his lie detector test. I'm not exactly sure what to do with this information because I don't hold a lot of stock in lie detector tests and we all know that they're not admissible in court, but we do know also that they can be cheated. So do we believe that Leland had nothing to do with who she met in Vegas or how she got to Sacramento? I personally don't really think that I can believe what he's saying because a lot of his stories are missing important details and need to be known in order to make sense of his claims like who was at the house and who accused Alexis of stealing money. Is he involved in anything shady like drug drug trafficking or sex trafficking? And like, how does he have connections to the people at 125 Richmond? I don't know. It all seems really messy. And definitely, I think you guys should check out the video of his interview and DM me on Instagram and let me know what you think. Another big thing about Leland is why would you spend money to get Alexis and her friend out to Vegas? Why can't you just hire the strippers locally like Vegas, like prostitution is legal. So it seems like it would be really easy to hire locally. So what I'm thinking is maybe this is a sex trafficking ring and police are thinking the same thing. They think that Alexis was maybe in the stages of being recruited for an escort service or like eye candy at the party. And maybe Leland's whole role in this thing was just to arrange the meeting. Like he's simply the recruiter. April believes that the last year before Alexis went missing seems to be very similar to what the grooming process for sex trafficking victims looks like. After Alexis and her son's father broke up, she was in a very vulnerable place. She began reaching out to people to try to find people to surround herself with and found these people, like I said earlier, about a year before she went missing. When researching information about sex trafficking for this case, I found a great infographic card from this website and I want to go through the information because it was pretty shocking to me and a lot of it does line up with Alexis's situation. It talks about recognizing the early signs of sex trafficking and they break it down like how long these stages last and for the first stage it's recruiting, the second stage is trauma bonding, and the third stage is training. So with the recruiting, a lot of it is identifying and befriending victims to build their trust and gather information. A lot of times it presents in a too-good-to-be-true opportunity, i.e. modeling or an affectionate and generous older boyfriend who claims to understand your situation and will side with a girl against, or guy, sorry, girl or guy, anyone can be a victim, and sides with her against unreasonable parents. 
The warning signs you need to know to help your friend if you think they're in this situation is like sudden changes in behavior, suddenly receiving a bunch of expensive gifts, secretive behavior, and then short disappearances. Trauma bonding is how abusers break down the barriers of their victims and establish dependence upon the abuser. How it works is like physical and emotional violence, threats, forced criminal activity, and other trauma, including rape. The victim is blamed and convinced that they deserved it, and that can include abduction. What it looks like to others is runaway, rebellion, absent from the usual functions and events, and the person is often escorted and monitored. Once the victim has been broken or traumatized, the abuser works to create the trauma bond by villainizing friends and family and creating dependence. They also use ongoing physical and emotional abuse to instill fear and get compliance. They may also create drug or alcohol dependencies. Other victims who are already well-trained take over the roles of teacher and enforcer. What it looks like to others is most often extended disappearances from home. If they're already at college or living away from home, contact, if any, is infrequent. Details about day-to-day events are vague and incomplete. And if you think that someone you know is being sex trafficked, you need to know that they are now more emotionally fragile and vulnerable than ever, and they may not be able to think clearly. They are not acting as the person you know because the abuser is waging psychological warfare against them and they need your help. After reading a lot of these stages, it seems way more clear to me that the blatant signs that Alexis was very likely being sex trafficked. I do understand though that a lot of people probably look at what April said and that she's not able to see her daughter in a negative light because it's her daughter. And of course she's going to be biased. She loves her daughter and she wants her daughter safe and home with her. And like the descriptions of the stages, sex trafficking recruitment and retrieving someone from sex trafficking is a very long process. It's all about a psychological game that's being played and it's very effective for the abusers. Oftentimes it looks like a person is doing it to themselves. Without knowing all of the details of it and all of the factors, it could just look like her running away or her being an escort. But when you pull up all the layers, it's more clear and more obvious that it's a lot more than that. When thinking about if this case is sex trafficking or not, I always come back to the fact that April would call Alexis when she was in Vegas, and her friend would answer, and then a man would answer and say she had the wrong number. It doesn't make any sense, and I honestly can't find an alternate explanation for this. Whoever the man was that was answering the phone was very obviously trying to block April's access to her daughter and Alexis's access to her mom. It seems that it was very likely sex trafficking because how did Alexis call her friend and tell her that she was in Sacramento, according to Leland, but then her friend somehow ended up having her phone to answer it when April's calling and then the man has it. I feel like that just makes the whole Alexis was out there to be an escort in Vegas thing not make any sense. The whole thing falls apart with her being unable to access her phone and then for Leland to say that she called her friend or texted her friend or whatever when she was in Sacramento and that just proves my opinion that Leland had to have something to do with it. In the police timeline, they mentioned finding the back page ads for Alexis while she was in Vegas and I'm really curious if police will ever say if they found any more ads or anyone who responded to the ads. I want to know what information they were able to gain from the ads and if she actually met up with someone. I honestly don't know if Alexis is still alive. 
I don't know if the blood or any other DNA was found on that mattress that was burned or any of the other collected materials, and police are likely not going to release that information at this point to keep the integrity of the investigation. It seems awfully suspicious that all of the items were burned and that there was blood on them and that they were items from the house. And all of that happened the day after Alexis was last seen. At this point, it's really hard to say who was involved and to what extent, but I do think that this case will eventually be solved. There's been more information that's come forward recently, and I think it's just a matter of time. At least, I really hope so for April and the rest of Alexis's family, especially her son, who hasn't seen his mom in over two years, and that's longer than the time he actually had to spend with her. I hope the truth will come out and her family can have closure. At the time Alexis was last seen, she was wearing blue jeans and a pink jacket. Anyone with information on Alexis's whereabouts or her disappearance is urged to call the Peoria Police Department at 309-673-4521, or you can also leave an anonymous tip at Crime Stoppers at 309-673-9000 or on the Alexis Scott Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Murder on the Map. If you liked what you heard and you want to help us bring more victims home, please become a sponsor. You can do that at the link in the show notes. And thanks for hanging with me on this week's episode. I know it's long and kind of convoluted, but I think that this story is really important. And I think that um, please share with your friends. And Alexis, really, we need to know what happened to her so she can come home to her son. So please share this with your friends. And if you know anything about her disappearance, please come forward. You might have noticed we have new theme music that was composed by Nick Scrivens and Murder on the Map is a Radio Free Roscoe production. I'll be back next week with an all new episode. And if you have a case you'd like for me to cover from your state, please DM me on Instagram at Taylor B Talks, or you can email me at taylor at murderonthemap.com. Have fun out there and be careful.